Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel has a fascinating story, I, I, I think, and he was a proclaimed atheist. For years, he was a pro- proclaimed atheist, and he was a legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was a man of facts and conclusions. He believed Christianity did not hold any weight, especially whenever a satisfactory answer could come from science. Explanations worked for him. But in 1980, Lee Strobel began an investigation that would alter the course of his life. You see, just prior to this investigation, his wife came to him one night and said, I've become a Christian. Now, Lee was afraid of that because he was afraid of what that might do to her. She was going to turn into a person that just was not fun, not exciting, not the person she, he married. So he was scared. But after some time, he started noticing changes in his wife for the better. Changes on how she treated him, how she treated his kids. And he got the question about this thing called Christianity. So he decided that he was going to investigate it and eventually prove it wrong and knock some sense into his wife. But through the process, he discovered that in 1981, he made his own commitment to Christ. Looking back on that, recounting the investigating process, Strobel remarks, some people are more experiential. They like to experience things. But because I come from a law background, a legal background, and a journalism background, I tend to respond to facts and evidence. My way of processing my spiritual journey was to ask the question, is there any evidence that supports Christianity being true? Later on, he said that uh, throughout all of his research, the evidence was so overwhelming that it would take more faith for him to be an atheist than to be a Christian. In his effort to prove Christianity wrong, he became a believer, and he wrote about this process in this book called The Case for Christ. Uh, And it's really an impressive read with a lot of this. But there are a lot of enemies of Christianity. There are a lot of people that maybe are passive. They're not so aggressive with being against Christianity. Maybe like Lee here was. It's just he didn't fight it. He just didn't believe it was true. But then there's others. We don't have to look very far to see the animosity towards Christians. That we see it all over in our world. There are many that are against the church. As we open up our our scriptures in Acts 9, we meet a man who was against the church. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. He hated anything that had to do with Christ. Because of this hatred, Saul did everything within his power to destroy it. And that's his intent as as he gets arrest warrants. And he begins his trip to Damascus, Acts 9, 1-2. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now let's put a little perspective on this of what exactly has been happening. 
We, we've talked in previous weeks about where the church has been going, where it started just in a small group and seemed against all odds started to grow. And it survived church conflict. It survived uh, the first martyr and it uh, survived a lot of things going on. But with that first martyr, a lot of the Christians were experiencing persecution there in Jerusalem. And so as it says at the beginning of chapter 8 that they left. They left Jerusalem heading out for different places. Well, Saul didn't want this Christian movement to go. He thought it was against God and everything against, uh, that he believed in. So he was going to chase these Christians down. Jerusalem to Damascus is about a six-day walk. A little perspective on that then. Saul was so angry with these Christians, not that they were just working in Jerusalem, that they had left, that he was willing to travel for 12 days, plus however long it took him there to round them up, just to take care of this thing called Christianity. I want to call your attention, though, to a phrase that he used. He doesn't call it Christianity. That term hasn't really been accepted yet. What he called it was followers of the way. What does that mean? What does it mean to be called of the way? These Christians, they were called those belonging to the way. I think that indicated a a different way of life. What others saw in these early Christians, they saw something that was different. And it was just a different way. These Christians lived by a different standard. They shared everything. They took care of orphans, widows, gave to those in need. In short, they were bound by love. It was a different way. And that's what impressed the world of the first century with this this way of the Christians, that it was different. I've always liked that, that title and I've you know, when people have asked me if I would worship at a, any other congregation, any other church by another name besides Church of Christ, what would it be? And I was like, man, it'd be one that was titled The Way. Because that, that just seems to be so inherent of what it is. It's we are people of a different way. It's impressed the world. Maybe it even reminded them of Christ. Because Christ said He was the way the truth, and the life. Maybe there was some sort of remembrance. Let's look at this man, Saul. Who was he? Where did he come from? What what is significant about this man at this point in life? We know a lot of his story later whenever he becomes Paul, but who is Saul? Saul was born in the Greek city of Tarsus. He learned at a Jewish synagogue there. And uh, from there, he was was the son of a a strictly orthodox Pharisee, uh, his father, but that wasn't enough for him. He himself was a Pharisee, so this meant that he had a deep love for the Jewish faith and the Jewish law. He studied it. He was with it. And, but more than that, he wasn't just a Pharisee and a normal Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel doesn't mean much to us today. We meet a little bit of him in the book of John, but Gamaliel was the leading authority of Judaism at the time. And so to study under Gamaliel was, was your Har- Harvard Law School, whatever it may be, your Ivy League college, this is a good education. The best that Judaism can offer studying under Gamaliel. He was passionately serious about his belief in God. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, which I think 
we, we take for granted as Christians a lot of times. We don't necessarily study and memorize the scriptures, but Jews, all Jews, in their early schooling, that's all they did was study and memorize scriptures. But after a while, whenever they became older, the good ones were able to continue and, like Saul here, work under a rabbi of Gamaliel's standard was great to where Saul probably had most, if not all, of the Old Testament scriptures memorized, plus all the oral tradition. This is a man that knew what was happening in the Jewish faith. He believed that in a God and was active in his faith, but come to find out he was wrong. He did not know God. Saul was religiously active, but he was dead wrong about his beliefs with God. You know, it can be a frightening thing when people, people think that they know the Bible, maybe even think that they know the difference between right and wrong, but they don't know God. You see, Saul had religion, but he did not have a relationship. And that was his inherent problem. The religion of Saul was inherited. It was the religion of his dad. He learned it from his father. He grew up in a Pharisee's home. He was taught the life of a Pharisee as a child. As he got older, he sat with the teaching of the most influential Jewish teacher of his day. It wasn't long before Saul knew all the laws, knew all the ordinances of Judaism. There was one problem. Saul knew Judaism. But he didn't know God, at least not yet. I would say that might be a quick lesson just for us parents. Let me take a side note. With us parents, it, it is good that we, we teach our children all of, the, all of the doctrine of Christianity and all the things going on with what Christianity means, but it's even more important that we introduce our children to the person of Jesus Christ. And they have that relationship with Him because if all they know is the laws, the regulations, what, what people say about Christianity, they might have it in their head, but they're not taking it to their heart. And that is what Christ wants, is what we talked about in class this morning, is the heart of the believer. Saul knew his religion, but he missed his point. God wanted him, though. This is a man that God wanted. He may seem an unlikely leader, as we know that he becomes later on in Scripture, but God wanted this man. With all of his background, with everything who he was, God wanted him. Verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there, blind, for three days. He did not eat or drink. Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? Now the word Lord here, if you noticed, it was not in all capitals. Most of the time we we come across the word Lord in Scripture, it has the capital L-O-R-D, or at least the first letter's capital, and this is always referring to God or that being of authority there, but the Lord here is not in capitals. A study of it 
it indicates that this was more an equivalent to our our addressing of appreciation or even a fear in some ways when we say master, uh, not to master so much, but our mister and sir. Who are you, sir? Who are you, mister? I don't know you. He didn't recognize that voice. That was not the God he knew. Who are you, Lord? I wonder kind of in that moment if Saul recognized that he didn't know who God really was. Jesus' response was, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now that can just be kind of quick, but to Saul, he knew exactly who this was. There was no more need for definition who you are persecuting. You may remember in the stoning of Stephen that whenever they stoned Stephen, they lay their coats at the feet of Saul. And then a couple verses later, it says who is giving approval to this work. I've always heard that that meant that he was there just giving approval. But after some study and after some understanding, the person that you laid the coat, who had the charge of the coats, was the authority by which it was happening. So it was by Saul's authority that Stephen was dying. Saul was sanctioning Stephen's death. I wonder, in this moment when the light flashed and Jesus spoke to Saul, did he understand what Stephen was saying in his sermon? Did he put it all together and said, Jesus did die. He was resurrected and now He's talking with me. I wonder how much that affected him. Jesus tells him, get up, go into Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. Notice at this point, Saul doesn't make any excuses. He gets up, realizes he's blind, but that doesn't stop him. He has his companions help him. They get him to Damascus. He doesn't make any excuses here. He's been humbled. Christ had to flash a bright light from heaven to get Saul's attention. Saul was blinded by Christ. He was blinded physically so he could indicate that, Saul, you're blinded spiritually too. You've got this spirituality thing wrong. You need to set it right. Unfortunately, I think there are probably many people like Saul in our world. Those that think they have it right but are blind to the truth. Who truly believe they're doing the will of God but are working against him. Saul was spiritually blind. Christ had to physically blind him to get his attention. I wonder what Christ needs to do to get our attention sometimes. Do we need that bright light to come on uh, from heaven and blind us physically for us to truly see what God is doing? Let's read on. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask a man from Tarsus named Saul. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went, found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Ananias is called by God here. And I think that's an impressive thing for one because Ananias does not appear in any scripture anywhere else. This is not the same Ananias that that we've seen, or uh, this is a totally different person. A new person just seems to be a faithful follower, and God speaks to him and says, you've heard of this man named Saul? Go find him. And Ananias questions God. Lord, are you sure? Haven't you heard? This, This is the Saul that has been doing your church so much trouble, so much harm. God reassures Ananias, yes, he's my chosen instrument, go to him. Ananias is obedient. Now, here's a kind of a wonderful thing whenever he goes to Saul. He didn't say, Saul, who do you think you are working against Christ, persecuting my fellow Christians? Who do you think you are? He didn't act like he was better than him. In fact, what he said, brother Saul. Isn't that a great term? Brother. To a man who was fighting against the very cause, Ananias comes to him and says, Brother. He's saying, Welcome. Welcome aboard. We know what Christ did for you. You are one of us. Come on in, brother. I think that's just beautiful. And I think we need to have that heart of Ananias there being able to welcome Saul had been praying and and fasting for three days at this point. He was ready. Soon as Ananias spoke that about receiving the Holy Spirit, something like scales fell off his eyes, and he could see, physically and spiritually. He could see. He was on board with what Christ was wanting for his life. He could see. He had seen the light. He could see. He was baptized. And it continued on, as we know in the life of Paul. There are several questions, though, that come to mind whenever I read this story. First question, really, is, is what happened to the men that were with Saul? There were men on the road with Saul. It says they even saw the light and heard a voice but didn't see anyone. I would like to believe that after seeing that, after leading Saul to this house, In seeing everything that happened, I would like to believe that they followed Christ as well. It doesn't say that. But on the other side, I know that there are many people who see the works of God every day and still refuse to believe. So why are these men any different? Maybe it was just thunder. Another question I think this story confronts us uh, is, do we really believe people can change? I would suppose that if you do not believe that, you're missing out on something Christ really has to offer. But that is really a a very deep statement for me because there's been a lot of people in my life that have hurt me, that have just torn me in two. Can they change? That's a question I guess we have to ask, and I think this text is asking us, can people that bad really change? 
When Christ enters life, change happens. It can't be avoided. Saul would later write about this in Galatians 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, people can change. When Christ enters a heart, change happens. It's unavoidable. Here's another question, though. What would happen to Saul if Ananias hadn't gone? I'm sure God had a backup plan if Ananias decided to refuse God. Or maybe he just trusted in Ananias enough. He knew that he was a faithful servant, that he was going to follow through with this. But what would have happened if Ananias didn't go to Saul? Well, I guess we don't need to worry about that because he did. He went to Saul and changed. It can be a scary thing. Just think about it in Ananias' footsteps. When he questions God, he's questioning for his own security. Saying, but God, this is the very person that was coming to hunt people like me. You want me to go to him? It can be a scary thing to tell people about Christ. Some people may make fun of you. Some people may even get angry with you. But when Christ speaks to us, tells us to go, we must go. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We must go. How they respond, I like this. How they respond is not our responsibility. If Ananias went to Saul and told him that Jesus had sent him and everything went as it happened, but Saul did not believe, and Ananias, it didn't go so well for him, that is not Ananias' fault. You see, Ananias didn't have the power to save Saul. He was not the one that converted Saul. Jesus did. Who sent the light on the road? Jesus orchestrated the whole thing. It doesn't even tell us that Ananias was praying for Saul beforehand. But Jesus wanted him on his team. We must remember that when we go, it really doesn't have anything to do with us. When Christ asks us to be agents in this world, to spread his gospel, it doesn't have anything to do with us. Christ's ability to save has nothing to do with our ability to speak or our our ability to understand the Bible or to persuade. Christ has the power to save, and he is asking all of us to go, and that's it. Just like Ananias, go. Go to Saul. And because of that, Saul went from persecuting Christians to preaching for Christians. He went from bringing death to sharing life. He went from aiding the Jews to astonishing the Jews. I think Paul certainly knew what he was talking about when he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. How will people know this new life if they're never told? How how will they understand if we never bring it to them? We are agents of Christ and His mission in this world. We live in a very dark world. Christ sent His light to Saul. This light was so bright that it blinded him physically. But it caught his attention. And now... 
Christ asks us to do the same. We live in this dark world, but we need to turn the lights on for people to truly see. They may be afraid of the light. They may not be used to it. You know how it is in a very dark room and someone just turns on the light. I used to do this as a youth minister. The teens loved to sing uh, with the lights off. And it was always a good time until announcements came. And I would need the lights on for announcements. And so I'd flip on our 15 fluorescent lights all at once. And I heard many complaints about that, but it always was kind of fun. I was like, ah, you know, get over it. You know it's coming. But when you're in a dark world and you see the light, you're first confronted, it's not a good thing to be exposed. But that is what Christ is asking us to do. It's our mission. Our mission is to spread this light into the world. Send the light, take the light, whatever you want to call it. We are, sp- we are spreading this light of Jesus into this dark, dark world. That's our mission. That was what God called the early church to do through Ananias and several others. That call is still the same. Are we living up to it, though? Are we living up to that call of Christ to send the light? To turn the lights on in this world? Maybe today you're a religious person like Saul who is spiritually blind. You may have all the right answers, you may have all the right understanding, but you don't have the relationship with Christ. And you might need to, you might need to fix that today. You might need to come to Christ to open your eyes so that you can truly see. Or perhaps you do have that spiritual insight and you just need to begin making yourself available to Christ. You need to open yourself up and say, Lord, I'm here, I'm ready. And as Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Maybe that's the response that you need. Say more like Ananias. Or perhaps you just need Jesus to be Lord of your life, to change you like he did Saul. What is your response? What do you need from Christ this morning? Whatever it may be, if you would like to make it known before the congregation, please come forward as we stand and sing.